Don't you think we're going to cut that? Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here. Hope you're doing well out there wherever you are. It's a beautiful sunny spring morning here, April 1st in Nashville, Tennessee. The sun is shining, the birds are chirping, the lilies are blooming, and the pollen is comfortably settled on your white sedan. Today we've got an interview with Marty Simpson. If you don't know who Marty Simpson is, I can tell you one thing about Marty. It takes a little while to get to know Marty Simpson. He'll even tell you that. But you know what? Once you do, you realize Marty has a real heart for beginning comics. He wants to help them out, uh, not only through just, you know, here's some suggestions that I saw from watching your show, but also he puts together events and things that are good for comics, such as Punchlines in Pajamas. This is an online open mic where you just pull up your computer, your phone. You don't even have to be visible. You could be uh, on your phone and do this open mic where you get a couple of minutes to do some jokes. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're right in there trying out new material. Regardless if you're busy already, maybe you're a single dad and you don't have time to leave the kids behind to go to open mic on a Tuesday night at some smoky bar. Guess what? Just put them to bed early and do punchlines and pajamas. The next one is happening April 2nd, 2019. That's right. If you listen to this on the day of release, that's tomorrow. If you listen to this the day after, it's today. If you're listening to it three days after, it was last night. Anywho, what you got to do is go to Punchlines and Pajamas on Facebook. There'll be some links you can click to get signed up. You want to get in there and go ahead and sign up now so Marty and the gang can know how many to anticipate. And we're shooting for 30 people plus on this particular Punchlines and Pajamas. So get in there, do that. You can click links if you go to the show notes for this episode, schooloflast.com, and then look for podcast tab. Hit that. Hit the Marty Simpson episode, which should be the top left. And you'll see some links to go right to the page to sign up. All right, let's get into Marty Simpson, a comedian friend of mine I've known for about 10 years or so. And how he started comedy will be uh, kind of interesting, I think, to you guys. Where he did his first real stand-up set was a what we would call a lot of pressure. But he went in there and did it, and it did not work out. And he'll tell you all about what he learned from that experience. Let's get into it. Marty Simpson, School of Laughs, Punchlines in Pajamas. <laughs> My man, Marty Simpson, what's going on? Hey, hey, Rick, what's up, man? Not much, man. I've been wanting to talk to you for, I guess, since I started the podcast 187 episodes ago, but uh, it hasn't, <laughs> worked, <laughs> hasn't worked out schedule-wise. Lately, I've been trying to, to clean up my mistakes of not getting people on the show, uh, and especially, and we'll talk about it sometime in this podcast, but uh, the punchlines and pajamas thing that you're doing is, is pretty cool, so I want to make sure we get to that at some point and make sure people know what's going on today. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I actually heard the first three or four episodes and was like, man, I really do not need to associate with that. And so then I took like a few weeks off. <laughs> and then by the time you got in your groove, I was like, man, by the 30 or 40th episode, I should be on this thing. So no, I'm just teasing. I didn't, I didn't do any of that. But <laughs> I, I'm excited to be here today. And uh, we've been friends a long time. So I'm excited to be here. It's gonna be fun. Well, you know, I always try to f backtrack and figure out where people started and then where, we're, where, where we intersected. So 
I, I know about you from seeing some old posts and some things that you played football back in high school and in college. You were a, a punter, kicker. What was the little bit of both? Yeah, I wasn't like a real player in college. I was just the kicker and punter. And um, But in high school, I like to put out there for my, my own ego. I was the quarterback in high school and played basketball and ran track. So I was I was an athlete, at least. I wasn't like... It's funny to me. I show up at shows and the people who knew I was a kicker are always like, you're so big because I'm 6'4", 225 pounds. And so I think when people get my bio and they're a place kicker, they expect to see like a chihuahua type right. person right. on stage. <laughs> and so I was a place kicker and I always wanted to be a place kicker. And um, then in college, I was able to actually be the punter also. I did that in, in high school too, but... I wasn't really recruited as a punter, but I ended up beating out the other the other punter, uh, and that was a lot of fun. And so playing at the University of South Carolina, uh, the punter got a lot of action, so that was fun. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> got a lot of reps. Yeah. Yeah, we, we lost, in 92, we played Alabama, who went on to win the national championship, 13-0, um, and 0, and we played at Bryant-Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa, and we lost 48-7, to 7, and I think I punted 16 times. And I was riding back on the plane with the backup tailback running back. And he was like, Marty, I think you got more reps than I did today. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> this is a kid that played like rushed for hundred yards the week before. So it was, <laughs> I think my 16 snaps like uh, outpaced my backup running back. So I felt pretty good. Oh man. So, but, um, and so in the early days you're doing football and all that stuff was comedy on your radar at all. Were you listening to some in the background? Go, going through college, I knew I was going to come out and be a football coach. Uh, but I, I wanted to be a drama teacher so I wouldn't lose that that edge of, of performing and fun in front of people and stuff. And so I kind of studied theater. And my brother was a professional uh, improviser, uh, actor, comedic actor type thing too. And he went to LA out ahead of me. And so I kind of was connected to that world through him. And and um, But I got married early in college, like my senior year in college. I got early in life, late in college. And so I kind of did it backwards, Rick. I was kind of like, I didn't go to LA and fail and then come back and teach. I like got out of college and taught <laughs> and then had my midlife crisis and decided to do comedy in the middle of that. <laughs> and so, so what, what year did you remember hitting the stage, like on your own, d- telling jokes, not particularly in a group or a sketch where you're like, this is stand up. I, um, the first time I remember thinking this felt like stand up comedy, I was hosting the school's talent show that I taught at. Um, so like in, I would say like 97, 98, like the first year or second year, I was a drama teacher at a Christian school, probably 500 people in a big theater. And it, and I'm not exaggerating. It was like a five and a half hour talent show because the school was an unorganized Christian school that hadn't really had anything like that before. And so they just said yes to everybody. And they made the entire, um, the entire senior class had to have group sketches and this, that, and the other. So they just didn't even think like, Oh, this is going to be long, but it probably was an hour longer because of my in-between filler stuff. Right. (laughs) Like I just made fun of the acts. I made fun of the people there. I interacted. And, um, and I remember getting done thinking, I told my wife, I was like, man, that felt a lot like hosting the Oscars. And, um, and that might be something I want to do. So then I was teaching school and coaching football and not doing lesson plans in a timely manner. And I was tasked with teaching the seventh and eighth grade boys health and PE and sex ed, even though I was a drama teacher, I was the football coach. So they were like, you're teaching PE. And, uh, and so I literally would read the lesson in health and then walk in the room and teach it like five minutes later. That's how far ahead of the students I was staying. And um, that's really what I would credit 
as my first days of stand-up, 180 school days, five different preps a, a day is like 900 shows a year. But uh, the kids begged me for like seven or eight years straight that I taught. They're like, you have to do stand-up coach. You have to do stand-up coach. And um, I think because I was that teacher that was distracting everybody with laughter and stuff. And so I think 2008, um, the very first time, it's a stupid story. Uh, the very first time I did comedy was auditioning for Last Comic Standing. Um, I thought if I drive up here and spend the night on the, the concrete in Nashville, probably right around the corner from you. Oh, yeah. And uh, and at Zany's, I thought, well, I'll get on television because the, at that time in Last Comic, they were letting everybody audition. Um, and I thought, well, they'll go through the line and I'll get to do like a minute and then Ant, the, the judge, will stop me. And I knew that he stopped the guys that were good and interrupted him like, well, how long you been doing comedy, Rick? Like that would be the, the telltale sign that like they knew you were a comedian. So I thought, well, if I can do 30 seconds of good, polished, good looking comedy and trick them. And then Ant could ask me how long you've been doing comedy. And I could say, this is the first time I've ever done it. Right. That would be on television. Like that one minute would be on television. I would come home. My students would watch last comic and then I would be a hero and I would go on teaching and coaching and it would never like, that's what my comedy career would be. <laughs> I didn't right. intend to go do comedy forever. And, uh, so I got up there and the audition process was totally not like that at all. This year, we all waited in line in a fake process to make it look like American idol. And then you had to have an agent to get past the first round of everything and so I shouted my jokes in a big tent at a 20 year old producer with 50 other people shouting their jokes at other producers and stuck my tail between my legs and went home. Right. <laughs> and it was, it was stupid from that moment on. I just was like, I'm going to go to an open mic and do comedy cause I didn't get to do it. And then the first time I did it was in an urban room here in Columbia, South Carolina that, um, Jimmy JJ Walker, I think was the headliner. And, um, he said to me that night, uh, Marty, this room is not, I don't know. He said, I'm not black enough for this room is what he said to me. And I was like, what does that even mean? He was like, this is a, this is a room that, that you're not going to do well in. Like, <laughs> like he told me before <laughs> the open mic and he, and he said, this is a room I'm probably not going to do well in. And I went up there and, um, did four minutes of my well-rehearsed, polished, perfect jokes. I thought I was going to write. And the people at the tables didn't even stop talking amongst themselves. They just didn't stop talking. No one laughed at anything I said and it was brutal. And I thought to myself, well, I did it once. Now I can go back and not be distracted <laughs> by that life. And, and, um, and the host ran out in the parking lot and grabbed me and said that I needed to come back a month later, that I was great. And then he loved me and that, you know, forget all these people here. Um, I'm translating a little bit about what he said <laughs> that forget all these people here. Right. <laughs> they don't, they don't mean anything and just take control. And, um, and I came back a month later and hammered like five minutes and it was like an instant heroin addiction from that moment forward. And then a couple of those African-American guys involved there became my mentors, like Mike Goodwin. He's been mm -hmm. on the show and a good friend. Yeah, yeah. He's in my hometown. And so my first year of comedy, I didn't perform in front of white people at all. I just went around to black churches and, and, and venues like that. That's great. And it, it's always interesting to me, like in most early stories of, of comedy, there's somebody that encourages you to stick with it because it's so brutal. Like you said, the first time with America, you know, last comic standing didn't go well. Then this first time at the church didn't go well. But one person thought for a second to come out and tell you, hey, you don't know what this is normally like. You did fine. It's just they weren't going to give it up for you no matter what. And it, there's comics. I like to hear about stories like that because nine out of 10 comics would be like, I'm glad that guy's never coming back. 
but it only takes one to go, hey, you got to stick this out for a little bit longer to see how it rolls, you know? So I'm curious, do you remember who that person was? Or are they still doing it or... Well, let me let me back the story up a little bit and say there was two people exactly like what you're referring to, and I know their names exactly. At Last Comic Standing, this was kind of what I would, if you want to be cheesy about it, I'd call it like a God moment. But uh, if you want to be atheist about it, it's like a coincidence. But I, um, <laughs> I, I pulled my car in literally like right by Zanies. Like I parked my car in a spot where my my headlights were touching the Zanies side of the building almost, and there was a guy pulling out. And there was two guys sitting in a car next to him. And when that guy pulled out and drove off, I asked, is that his spot? And he was like, nah, man, you're good. And then when I pulled in, he said, with my window down, he was like, but he'll probably be mad at you when he comes back. <laughs> like, and I laughed and I got out and talked to that guy for like 20 minutes, maybe. And I had him and his buddy cracking up. He had me cracking up. We just kind of connected immediately. And that guy's name was Horace H.B. Sanders. Oh, yeah. He he had... um been on the show the previous year with like a, 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 a agent audition. So he'd skip the process and he was coming back this year to just be part of the, the cattle call. And he didn't know why he came. He kind of got in the car and came at the last minute and just thought God had told him to come down there. And he told me within like 30 minutes of talking to me, he thought that the reason he, he came was to meet me. And so I was doing a full-time website development at this time. I had left coaching and teaching by, by a year or two, maybe a couple of years at this time. No, it was like more than that, maybe four years at this time. And um, so I got to bless him with a new website and do a bunch of work for him that he needed in his comedy journey. And he answered my phone call and talked to me about comedy, probably for not exaggerating an hour a day for like five months. Wow. And um, he just, and I, I tease him because he has eight kids and I feel like he had he had a like a room in his house that all eight kids would sit at his feet like they were seagulls and you had bread. <laughs> when we were on the phone, I could barely concentrate on anything because it was just like, no, no, why do you want to go out right now? All in the background and everything. It's just a funny, it's a funny <laughs> dynamic that Horace was had such a loud house and everything. But he is um he's like the godfather of teaching soundbite easy conversation to a young comic in my mind. Like I I've been begging him to get involved in CCA to come teach sessions on stuff. He actually won star search in 2003 with 90 second sets. So he can really get to the funny. And, um, he's just an old, he went to law school and dropped out of law school. So, so that guy was the major, major player. And he knew Mike Goodwin gotcha. and he, and he knew Akintunde and he was like, you're from South Carolina. I think I got a dude there, uh, Mike Goodwin. And so that's how I got in touch with Mike. And then, uh, but at the comedy club, it was actually Skip G. Lawson, who's just a club comic host, house MC at the at the um, comedy house. He's a funny comic. He's very good at the house MC stuff. And he came out, just jogged down in the parking lot. And I thought I had bombed and literally didn't want to see anybody. And he 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 went on to say, not only did he think I was great, he thought the jokes I said were great, and that this crowd just didn't get them. And so don't don't quit. Don't stop. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And Skip G's always been a cool dude like that. And, um, but I didn't really stay in touch with him. Like I did Horace and Mike and Akintunde. But, um, but that's, that's really those two guys reaching out like that. Had they not, I probably just go do my sets and then always wonder. Right. That's great. You had those guys. And so from there you went into hitting the open mics, you said for a pretty solid amount of time. And then Mm -hmm. Was it, did you meet Mike Goodwin in that first couple of months? It was right away. I mean, I got home in March and I was already doing like an old, what do you call it? A, an elderly care facility 
And I remember Mike Goodwin, Corey Johnson is another guy. Corey Johnson's a great comic. I'm trying to get him involved in CCA too. Not a lot of people know him, but he's a he's a Columbia guy. We went in there and I did like 10 minutes maybe and um and it was brutal. I mean brutal, just assisted living as as old as people can get. And I remember Corey went after me and he did his seven seven or eight minute set. And one of the ladies on the front row started yelling at him in a nice way. Like, I can't hear you. I can't, I haven't been able to understand what you said. I can't hear anything you're saying. And he leaned down and said, can you hear me now? And she was like, yes. And, and he just started his set over, like literally started over because he has assessed in the room that none of the elderly people had heard anything that he had right. said because the microphone or whatever. And I just remember thinking how gutsy it was <laughs> and how funny it was. And I got up there and I did, I did pretty well. I didn't do good comedy, but I did well in front of the, the people. And so I think Mike, you know, then put me on a bunch of shows with him over the next year. Just any time, anytime there was a show he was on, I was doing like five or 10 minutes in it. And, um, and then I was going to the open mics at the hostel rooms. I was in the process of starting my own room too. And then within 10 months of that, I was at the first CCA I went to where I met you. So 2009 CCA was a year later, so maybe 12, 13 months later. But but before that first CCA and that moment, I probably was on stage 40 or 50 times, maybe. That's good. Just, just hustling to get up in front of people. Yeah. That's hammering it for sure. And so you, you get in there, you said you quit doing the teaching, you were doing website development. So you had a little bit of leeway in your schedule, it sounds like, as far as if you got a gig, you could take it and still do the website development on the side. But you had a family to work work into that mix as well. Yeah, and, and sadly for my family, Blue Eyed Panda Productions, the web development and video production company I had started, um, was doing really well. I had like five employees and I was doing really well. And, and comedy kind of made that slow way down. <laughs> I mean, sort of, but it definitely distracted from that. But I tell people all the time, Rick, when they ask, how do you go full-time in comedy? And I'm like, well, the first step is to make very little money in the job right. you need to replace. Right. Like that's the first step. So I was a Christian school teacher making $17,900 with like a $2,500 stipend for being the football coach. Now, granted in 1997, there would also be the doctor that would just give me a check for $10,000 for being cool and staying at the school and not going to public school. And another, another lawyer would just give us a minivan. So there was blessings that God used to keep at the school. In fact, if you've seen Facing the Giants, I swear they stole my entire life story. Like that was, they didn't, they didn't at all. I'm not accusing those guys of doing that, but it is quite literally the same beats of my testimony or that is that story. Well, now, nowadays you're, you're doing a lot of gigs. Uh, churches, would you say is dominant, you know, in your schedule? And then do you do some corporate events? Like what's the mix of types of shows you do? I think there's two ways to answer that. From a money standpoint, churches are probably 80% and corporate probably 15 to 20% and then club the other 1 to 3 to 5%. But the number of gigs is probably 60% churches and 35% clubs and 5% corporate. But I'm going after more corporate um, just because I feel like the Coach Simpson aspect of things I've been putting the hat on lately and staying in, in the Coach Simpson mode a little bit longer in my act. And I feel like Coach Simpson is is ripe for the, the picking of a corporate speaking humorous type thing. And um, it's it's taken a while to really get confident in that, where I could really pitch that and, and find a way to pitch it and stuff. But I do think that probably if we do this again in five years, that Coach Simpson will be 
a lot more prevalent than mm. than the stand-up. But mostly because I'm a 47-year-old Anglo-Saxon Caucasian white guy, and there's just the half-life of that human being is very short. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, so I got to find a way to to be relevant for people to pay in the argument. So, and do you think it's but, like the coaching side of you as well, kind of coming into play? Like I'm good with communicating to people who need some direction. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely a hundred percent is because I'm not a coach because I wanted to coach. Like I kind of am a coach in life and it, and that's negative sometimes. <laughs> Some people don't want to be told right, what, right. what, what, what my opinion of how to do it better is. Cause I don't know that I'm right every time. I just know that I have an opinion. Well, um, I want to say this cause I think some people, and I think even you've told me this before, like, uh, you know, it, it takes a while to get to know Marty Simpson <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, some, and some people that, you know, because you're a coach and because you have opinions, you have a louder voice and you, and you come through stronger than some people are used to hearing, especially people that have been treated with kid gloves their whole life or, or just kind of sort of looking into comedy or whatever. When they hear somebody with a strong opinion, it's loud and assertive. They, they don't know what to do with that. You're used to being around football players and kids. And so your message had to be louder and, and crystal clear. And that's just part of who you are, which is how God's using you. Cause the people mm-hmm. who probably need to hear you the most are the ones that are going to respond to that clarity and that you know, a little bit louder uh, approach than the people who are just kind of kicking the tires on things. Like when you have something to say to somebody and you see you can help them out, they're going to know that you're communicating with them. Now they can accept that or they can turn it away, but they're not going to miss the chance to <laughs> interact. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I almost want to requ- require that you edit all this to the beginning because I feel like this is like ministry to me. Uh, Justin Fennell on the CCA was a guy that really sat me down and just said a lot of what you just said. And cause I didn't know, I didn't really know how I was perceived. I think you're right, but I think I have gotten better at letting people get to know me quicker just with, with mechanical tools of things. Like if I'm nothing, if not coachable is kind of my philosophy of life. Like I like doing things, assessing things, recording those things, correcting the mistakes and doing it again, better that's literally what a coach is. Right. And so I think that my approach to comedy was the same way. I've recorded every set I've ever done, listened to it again and tried to correct what I did wrong. Like, I think I'm the Bill Belichick of Christian comedy that way, <laughs> you know, but I actually jokingly judge the people who don't like, why wouldn't you want to get better? And I think that a lot of people are like, I'm an artist. It's just a fluid thing. Blah, blah. I'm like, fine, that's great. And so take 25 years to get better. I'll do it in three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fluid leaks, fluid leaks, my friend, you got to change the fluid. You've had the same fluid. I've, and we've both seen comics that have had the same fluid for five, 10, 15 years. Yeah. You change the sure. fluid. The vehicle yeah. there. Comedy is the vehicle, but you got to put that's it in fluid. I, well, I think too, part of your skill set is storytelling. Obviously. Um, it comes into, you know, our discussion today and the different aspects of the background of your career, but also you're able to take stories and make sure that they're funny throughout. And you do that by doing it over and over and finding out what's funny and keeping Mm -hmm. what works and ditching what doesn't or rewriting what doesn't because you record and you watch back your sets and you listen to them. And that's, that's the, to me, that's almost as fun as getting on stage is dissecting that stuff. And then the anticipation of trying the new angle out the next time is what keeps me fired up. 
Yeah, I agree. And you can even see it on the comics. I see it on Netflix specials. I, I definitely see it on my own recordings when I watch. But you see this like very genuine wry smile that overtakes the comic when the joke works. And now when you're watching Netflix, you think, well, that's just his rehearsed little reaction to get another laugh. But when I do it, sometimes I'm like, huh, yeah, the change I just made last night just crushed. And that makes me very happy. And right. I can't hide that. And the poker tell in that recording cannot be hidden from like, if I'm trying to do the Stephen Colbert stare down and not break character. But on that recording, it's like, hmm, <laughs> you hear in the mic, you kind of hear that little extra laugh, like, <laughs> like yeah. you hear yourself laugh. That's when I'm like almost the ego pat on the back of like, no, I, re I broke the film down and we blocked a new player on that trap play up the middle. And guess what? We scored. And, you know, when I was coaching, I would run down the sidelines with my hands up screaming and hollering, you know. And so on stage that gets translated into like a <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah. It's or hard, something like that. Yeah. It's hard not to be a little bit giddy when something works, especially with, especially the longer you've been working on it, when you finally find that little nuance that you change to get the reaction that's it's it's even more satisfying like a quick thing you wrote yesterday and you tweak tomorrow and it works the next day that's nice but something where you unlock the key that's been holding the whole thing back and now you can take yeah. five more minutes you're like what just happened well there's two examples that i'll give just as analytical examples and i know that i i, I ruin the fun of comedy for any artsy person that thinks it's just all fluid and like i break it all down so analytically johnny johnny w on road trips are like good grief marty you're exhausting but the, um <laughs> but it, here's a great example i think the corporate team that you surround yourself with it affects your comedy more so necessarily than almost anything else and so sean reynolds is one of my best friends i've been telling a story on stage about my kids learning foul language um for 10 years it was probably one of the first things i told back at the garden bistro and uh, I have a line that I've always been proud of. It's one of my favorite things I say on stage that says, uh, my kids learn foul language from the neighbors next door, Travis and Michael. And um, I didn't know what to do uh, when that happened. So I called my mother and I was like, mom, you're off the hook. They learned it from the neighbors. And it would be a great laugh in my show. Fantastic laugh. And I liked the rhythm of talking over the punchline a little bit because mm -hmm. I don't do that very often. And Sean just said to me two years ago, he saw the set in 2017 at CCA. And he was like, Marty, you need to flip that. You need to say, uh, mom, they learned all the foul language from the neighbors. So you're off the hook. Yeah. And now it's an applause break in my show now. And now, now analytically, if the waveform that's recording your set is a certain size, let's say a density of laughter. Now we've made this applause break happen at the beginning of the set that the rest of the laughter in that joke is put upon. Now every laugh after that is like cooking with gas instead of electricity. Like it is just like the foot on the gas pedal. Now that bit murders where it was a good lead up to the bat story for five years. Right. I flipped one thing. Cause Sean, another comic and like the, the ego maniacal coach Simpson is humble enough to admit I was willing to listen to Sean, but so uh, it's hard to take credit for your humbleness is what I'm joking about. Like yeah, but yeah. a lot of comics, a lot of comics will purposefully not do something that they're told by another comic because it, it rubs them the wrong way to be like, well, that's not my idea. I'm not going to do that. That was right. your idea in my, I mean, I rolled a, um, uh, you're actually in the credits, Rick of my, uh, of my special it's on amazon prime quick plug clean if it kills me on amazon prime you can see the ending credits 
I say the following comics uh, said something to Marty that made this show better. And I, I didn't want to say the following comics tagged my joke. <laughs> right. There were so many of them. I felt like people might be like, he didn't write anything. Right. Um, but there's probably 35 comics that I list there that just at shows said, hey, you know, you need to say this or this and it'd be funnier. And I mean, just if you're not willing to listen to that, you need a lot more talent than Marty has. Right. To, to be good at it. Because right. to me, what I think my talent is, is listening to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I wish when I teach these uh, performance classes in Nashville, people get up for a three minute set and then we give them feedback for 12 minutes. We do it with eight students and runs about two hours. We redo it the next week with new material. But I always tell the students, I'm like, I really would like to get up here and do three minutes and have you guys give me feedback for 12 minutes. I'm not going to do that because mm-hmm. you're paying to be here and I'm not. But you don't get that feedback when you're doing solo gigs and corporate events or church events. Sometimes we're the only performer. So it's, it's really great when other comics can come out and see you or you can, you know, shoot them a link to a recording and just have them mm-hmm. take a look at it for a little bit. The one thing I like about that joke you were just telling with the, you're off the hook is from, from a technique standpoint, you got to have hook at the end. Cause it's got the hard K sound and it's, right. re- and it's releasing the tension. So if you're on the hook before, the tension is you're on the hook. When you're off the hook, that's when the tension releases. And you were saying you're off the hook and the tension is releasing. And then you were saying, right. learn it from the neighbor's kids, which puts the focus back on the neighbor's kids. Whereas all the focus is on your mom and releasing the tension. And it's got a hard K sound. There's three reasons it works better there. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that like the artsy comic and the car ride that would say I'm exhausting is like hard K sound. Why do you even care? Why do you even care? I'm like, you know, Belichick, and Tom Brady aren't the best ever because they ignore the fundamentals. <laughs> right. You know, like Tom Brady's fundamental, the way he throws a spiral is perfect. And now he does some unorthodox things on top of that that make him special. So when I flipped it the first time I flipped it and I said, mom, I don't know what to do. They learned all the foundation from the neighbors. I paused and there was a, like a pregnant pause and I looked and I was like, so you're off the hook. It was like immediately explosive laugh, like it was a punchline to a knock-knock joke on a Laffy Taffy, like it just was a joke now. And I think the other way, it was like how Marty makes his parents laugh at the dinner table, mm-hmm. and the technique isn't there. So that being stubborn to not want to p- apply the technique to it, I see happen a lot. Like, I mean, I see comics willfully choose to not apply the technique, which I just find like ignorant and silly mm-hmm. like and so the other example was i told uh, i've been telling a little small story about my son lying slowly from the first time i did comedy almost and the the punchline is kind of like uh my my son lies so slowly that's how we can catch him well uh this vase is broken did you break it and then i would immediately pause like a little six-year-old kid and i would become a six-year-old kid in the act out and and do like five like pauses that get a nice little building applause break to finally I just exasperatedly like oh no and and it was a linchpin one of the best bits in my act for five years and then my brother says randomly in LA two two years ago uh you know Marty I've always been frustrated by that joke I think your son needs to tell the truth quickly first and then lie slowly because the first words I hear your son say are no, 
We need to hear him say, yes, yes, yes. And then see your that's face great. pause. And then, and I was like, well, that's six years, Alan. Why did you take six years to tell me? <laughs> right. Like at the restaurant table, I knew he was right. I knew it would change the bit. I knew everything it would do that day, that night in that show. Cause he didn't get to see me perform that often. I then we, when we wrote on a napkin right there, I was like, well, I need some fake questions to ask him to say yes to. So if the vase is broken and no is the lie, I just added to it. Walt, um, this vase is broken. Have you been in here this whole time? Yes, sir. Alone? Yes, sir. Did you break it? And then when I turn and look at the audience there, giant laugh. That yeah. now the other five act out laughs that used to build to one good laugh at the end when I would say no are built upon the the seven or eight out of ten density. Now mm-hmm. they're all those laughs are eight, nine, and ten out of ten. And so when I say no, it's a, it's a rippling applause break there. So now when I call it back 40 minutes later, it's even better then because it was a, an average bit that I loved having in the act because the callback to it was significantly above average. Right. right. And so I didn't mind having a B minus bit early in the set because the A plus callback to it made it all work. Well, now I have an A plus bit at the early part of my set. So now... I just am an analytical freak coach of comedy that an artsy comic would be like, you're exhausting. Right. But it's, but it's, it's the, the reason my stuff. fee has gone up. It's the reason my bookings have gone up. It's the reason my comedy works. Right. So, and I like, uh, I can't help but analyze that a little bit too. Is like, uh, what your brother gave you there was he increased the tension. So, so when he says, right. no, that's, that's the pop, but it was just a little pop, a decent pop and a consistent mm-hmm. pop, but he helped you inflate the balloon or the bike mm-hmm. tire or whatever with those two quick yeses that made that pop bigger. So not only did he build the tension, so the release of tension again is bigger, but he helped with the quick yeses and the slow no develop the contrast between the no's and the yeses. There's so many lessons in, in what you just did there and shared. Um, but the biggest lesson is, is being able to listen to other people's input on stuff mm. that you're really close to. And for me, it took, I'm not even kidding, at least a dozen years before I separated myself from my act. It was, I was the same. So if somebody criticized my act, they were attacking me. And it took me over right. a dozen years to go, oh, this is something I said. I can fix what I said. I'm still who I am. Yeah. What I was doing wasn't working. And so. Wow. And I've, I've probably said this in the past, but if, if you can immediately look at every stand-up set, every open mic, as just you're in the laboratory your jokes are in the Petri dish. Let's do it. Come back and analyze it and make it better. That's the goal. Not, I need to be liked and loved by the audience with the material I did. And if they don't like the material, they don't like me. That was, took over a decade for me to separate the two. And, and really the, the moment that I did, I started listening better to, to the audience, listening better mm. to input, re, rewriting jokes and making things stronger. So if people can pick that up early, and I know we have a lot of people listening to this that are, are even just haven't started comedy yet. They're right on the cusp and just kind of kicking the tires and listening to podcasts about comedy. Look at it as, as an experiment and you learn from mm-hmm. the experiment. Yeah. And I'm, it's actually ministry to me listening to you because I don't have a, a like empathy isn't my natural response to that because like, I think in terms of the hurdles I had to get over just feeling like a weird blessing that like that wasn't one of them. But I, when somebody would, correct my material like that. Like my brother, what I have is 
this ego kick in of like, no, the way I wrote it is good enough because of look at the two years of proof of this joke working. What I, what I had the cathartic like revelation of is like, just cause the joke is working never means the joke can't work better. Right. So if I'm getting a six out of 10 density of laughter in the room, the way I'm doing it, well, with one little tweak, I now can get a 10 out of 10 and it's like the difference in double A ball and pitching in the majors. Like right. it, it literally is the difference. So, but I think that um the class you teach, you taught in 09, I still apply some of the fundamental mechanics of it. And actually I'm just lazy sometimes when a joke is not working. I'm like, I need to just get back out the sheets and need to apply these rules like I'm a newbie. And then when I do make myself sit down and do that, I would say a hundred percent of the time I write two new lines mm-hmm. for for the, the, the joke, because you said I was a storyteller and I think that I cringe when I get called a storyteller a little bit, just because in, in comedy world, that is sort of code for you're not as funny, but I know you don't mean it that way, but right. I just, I, um, I still have a, a great sense of analytical pride that is based on like the, the amount of laughter in the story that I'm telling needs to mimic the amount of laughter in a joke tellers set. Yeah, like if you were just looking at the dynamics of it, it's it's keeping the same cadence and the pace. It just happens to be six minutes on this topic or this. You know, right. The arc is six minutes, but however, it's it's still slamming you in the face every ten or fifteen seconds or whatever it is. Right, and maybe it's um you know uh thumping you in the arm for five for for fifty seconds and then slapping you in the face as hard as you can slap, like harder than the joke teller who was maybe punching your arm for the same minute. And that would be like the density of the laughter. And so I think the storyteller always has the advantage on building an act because I got to write way less jokes. But so I can, I think a storyteller can get to an hour of quality material a lot faster in his career than a joke writer. But I think that a lot of the storytellers that get to that hour have a very mediocre hour. Right. Um, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I know what you're saying. Like, you don't want to be, if I say you're a storyteller, that's implying that you're not funny in the same way that a traditional standup is. But when a comedian tells a story, you right. have all, all of that element. Plus the audience gets, it's a special thing for them because now they have a, a five minute chunk to devour instead of 60 or 360, 20 second chunks, you know, right. the difference between eating popcorn and knocking out two bowls and then having an appetizer, a steak, a dessert and whatever, uh-huh. more time to enjoy it. But there are things like Mike Birbiglia changed my my outlook on this because uh, back in the day when Facebook first was launched for adults, like in 07, 08 or whatever, we all got on Facebook and ruined it. <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, exactly. Trashed <laughs> Facebook for the better and then, or for the worse. And then well, Mike Birbiglia had 3,400 friends at this point. I'd just seen what I should have said is nothing, which is the Sentinel special in my comedy career. I think that's my all time favorite special by him and probably one of my favorites. You have to skip the 10 minutes he makes fun of George Bush because it's not timely, but right. um, he's a, he's a fantastic storyteller to the point where he kind of shifted his career to being a one man show almost. And, um, but I, I emailed him like, or I Facebooked him, Facebook messaged him. And I just saw him on Letterman and I said, dude, you tell this nine minute Dennis Eckersley story at the end of your special. It's unbelievable. You're the best storyteller I've seen in years. Like how, like, how do you translate that to a five minute David Letterman set? And he sent back instantly on Facebook uh, I write shorter jokes for Letterman. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, dang it. I thought there was like going to be a magic pill that Mike Birbiglia could take to tell me. And I was just like, oh, well, that's just, that's dumb. <clears throat> but, <laughs> but it made me realize like, okay, well, maybe my nine minute bat story is never going to be on the Tonight Show. And so I've spent like 10 years trying to tell it in three minutes. And it took 10 years to conclude it's not good in right. three minutes. It's just not, I can, I can tell it in three minutes and it's just average. So why take a big league, major league baseball pitcher and bat him fourth in your lineup and watch him strike out three times? Right. right. Like let him pitch like, you know, <clears throat> but I did, um, I did spend a year getting it down to five or six or seven minutes. So I could tell it in like an eight minute showcase. And, um, and that's sort of, and that really helped it get better, uh, in order to get into one of my, bits it's a better story longer story about a woman who uh, said some things that i misunderstood well there's like a two minute lead up to even put me in the exposition of why i'm in that story and i was losing the crowd during that two minutes and i could feel it for like a while six months or a year i was like i need to i need all these pieces that are in this two minutes but i need some laughs in there so i just finally transcribed all the words i was saying in that two minutes and used those words and wrote jokes about those words. The main one being the names of the kids. I taught Lusungu and Tendizo Sabande. Um, and then I used to say these were uh, kids that were from Kenya. They were African kids that I taught that didn't speak that good English. And their mother didn't speak that good English. Well, there's nothing funny in that. And so, you know, Lusungu and Tendizo Sabande. These names have not been changed to protect the innocent. Right, right. Now, you know, now we've inserted a nice little laugh there. And then um, Lusungu is an African word that means mercy of God. And Tendizo is an African word that means Thomas. You know, <laughs> right. that's that's just a, I could say any word there. I could right. say any word I wanted to there. And for years I was saying Tyrone because a black comic on BET told me that was hilarious. And I used it and killed black churches with it. And it was applause break in black churches. And then white people got very uncomfortable and would not let me say Tyrone there and and it was just it was a record scratch in the middle of the act, and so I changed it to Thomas, and so white people could handle it. So <laughs> right. it's, a fun, it's a fun dynamic to tell my black comic friends how white people have oppressed my comedy career. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we probably need to cut all of that out, Rick. We probably need to cut all of that out. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't cut out the truth. People need to hear it. Now I could totally see uh, people getting uptight over stuff like that, but funny's funny, and. Like you say, either word works. So at least you're smart enough to move ahead and, and do what keeps the show flowing. Um, any other ideas on how you can insert more jokes and punchlines into a story? Because I find that to be a difficult thing for uh, a lot of people when they first start comedy, especially. The, the easiest way for me to get jokes added to my stories are when comics will say, you know what I thought you were going to say? If that phrase gets said, it's like, ding, 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 ding. Listen to what's getting ready to say it, be said. What's, what, what is, oh, that comic thought I was going to say, da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, no, that's funny. Because then another comic's in the back of the room, A, listening to your set. So you've already won because they're listening. And B, they're wanting to put input into you. So they, they want a little bit of ownership of this bit they like. You know what I mean? Whether their ego will admit that or not, they want, they want this tag they give you to make it in. That makes total sense, Marty. And, you know, we're running a little bit late on time, so I want to make sure I get in a couple of things. And I'm sure I'm going to have you back on uh, to break down some other jokes at some point. The punchlines in pajamas, pajamas, tomato, tomato, PJs. <laughs> I've seen people try to do this before and it fades away. You've got a group that's going 
and you've had it how many times now? And tell us exactly what it is and how people can get involved. I wanted it to be called Pants Optional Open Mic because you could sit at your computer whether you had pants on or not. But that was kind of filthy. And it just, just and you could abbreviate Pants Optional Open Mic and call it Poom. So you could say, let's Poom on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was horrible. Yeah, I would never say that, but thank you. So the idea was it would all be comics. We would all be paying attention. And uh, the ground rules are if you do want to do material, we ask that you stay in the chat for one hour. And um, we've had about 35 different comedians do time on shows. And we've had one a week since October 13th. So we've had about, I want to say, 17 or 18 in a row. Perfect. And how do people find this Punchlines in Pajamas? If you go to Facebook and just follow the group, uh, Punchlines in Pajamas, there's a little monkey in Punchline in, in, in Pajamas telling jokes in a microphone and there, I think we have about 80 likes right now we've we've had about 200 people sign up to do it and then they don't show up and do it they like freak out at the last minute right but it's it's been fantastic it, it really has been a, a cool group you, you you get four minutes to tell jokes but a lot of times people just will tell one or two jokes and then we talk about that joke for three or four minutes or five mm-hmm. minutes and it's just really been cool. I'm going to start having headliners uh, to somebody will get you to headline one of them in the next few sure. weeks. And, and sure. I, I got some well, stuff that needs some work. Well, and the headliner punchlines, you're going to go like fourth and you're going to do 10 minutes instead of four minutes. Because if you go last, it's like there's no point in going last in a virtual open mic. That's cool. But um, yeah, well, I'll warm them up a little bit and uh, and go from there. And it, it's been a lot of fun. I think that um, I think a lot of people are very interested in it. And a lot of people want to make fun of it. So some people sign on to make fun of it. And then they're like, oh, gosh, this kind of worked. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right. So I'd encourage anybody uh, to watch it. You can watch on Zoom. You can literally just sign on and watch one time and not have to do time. No, I agree. I always tell my students, especially when we're doing the uh, writing class, I know you want to get out there and hit an open mic right away, but at least go see an open mic and support it before trying to jump on stage and get some time. And at least that way you know the temperature of the room and you see what is good and what isn't good. So I like that idea of people just tuning in to check it out. And can you go back up maybe at the end if there's time left, if you really butchered a joke or something like that, can you jump back in? You might have done your four minutes nervously and then 40 minutes later be like, hey, I forgot to tell this one joke. Do y'all mind if I run this? Like, how amazing would that be at an open mic if you could just jump back up there and be like, yeah. I forgot this one tag. <laughs> I like how you turn into Barney Fife when you do my voice. Hey, I kind of forgot this joke. Can I get back in? <laughs> Your voice went up like a whole pitch. Hey, guys. I didn't do that on purpose. It might have just been <laughs> my so impression funny. of you. I don't know. That's so funny. Hey, guys. I got <laughs> hey, this one right here. I was, was talking, but you nipped it in the bud. Down, down, down. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's cool. Well, I'm going to definitely put that, you said Tuesdays, and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes and make sure people know about it. But, yep, I'll be in there the next time that I can possibly physically do it, jumping in. It works well, great Well, let's do this. Wise. Let's get on the calendar a time that you would kind of be the headliner that I would shout out to CCA. Hey, Rick Roberts is headlining it because that'll get a few of your listeners in. You might could even say on the podcast or on your Twitter or whatever, hey, I'm going to check out Punch on the Jumps tonight. Do some time if you want to join us. Well, let's do this. Um, this. I'll put this podcast out on April 1st, which is a Monday. Okay. And then the Tuesday, April 2nd right now, if nothing changes, I'm all in. I've got nothing on the books that night. Well, cool, man. Punchlines in pajamas. Sounds good. And we're going to lock it in for April 2nd. That's a Tuesday. If people want to jump in and I'll be in the mix that night, you can see what it's all about. Um, That's tomorrow night if you're listening to this on the day of release. So make sure you get in there. Again, I'll put all that in the show notes. Marty, wealth of information today. 
thanks for being along. And man, I'm really looking forward to this punchlines in pajamas. Well, I appreciate it. You're humble, man. You're the headliner of April 2nd, punchlines in pajamas. Our, our headliner. Well, as long as I can draw 12 people to that chat room, I'll be excited. <laughs> can I get a door deal? <laughs> <laughs> thanks, man. I'll see you there. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the School of Last podcast. I thought it was an interesting interview with Marty. Lots of good details in there, some insight into some joke writing. And, of course, Punchlines in Pajamas happening April 2nd, Tuesday. Get in there. Go to Facebook. Search Punchlines in Pajamas in your search bar. That'll lead you to some links. That'll take you to the sign-up form. Or you can do all that by going to schooloflast.com and checking out this podcast episode show notes. Hey, I want to thank our sponsor for this episode through Patreon. It was Jenny Lachlan. Jenny is out in Arizona. She has started doing speaking through Toastmasters, and she does creative work for companies who want to punch up their message with some comedy. Great to have Jenny on board. Uh, she joined Patreon. She was in on our last Zoom hangout. Got to uh, talk to her and find out more about her. Interesting gal, very funny person. You can get involved with the podcast through Patreon as well, if you like. Uh, Patreon is just a support system for the podcast. You know, we tend to not have uh, or go after even sponsors like, you know, Stamps.com and all that kind of Squarespace because those things are just kind of, I don't know, repetitious and not exactly what we're after. We're after people who really like the podcast and want to support it. And you can do that through a small monthly donation as little as a dollar. Or when you hit the $7 or more month level of Patreon, you get involved in the Club 52, which includes that quarterly Zoom hangout online where we can brainstorm together, work on material, work on what's going on in our business of comedy. And also you get a weekly email that prompts you to get bigger, better, and more bookable as a stand-up comedian. You can check all that out, schooloflast.com forward slash Patreon. Then last but not least, for sure, I've got a few appearances around the country coming up. If I'm in your area, perhaps we can hang out. I'll be in Amarillo, Texas in early April, the first week of April. Second week of April, we're looking at Grand Rapids, Evansville, and New Orleans. If you're in those areas, I'll be down there and I might be able to meet up for a quick Java. I'll be in Biloxi, Mississippi in April as well. And then in Kansas City in May, as well as Austin, Texas, and some other spots. So if you're in those areas, uh, shoot me an email, schoolofglass at gmail.com. We'll compare schedules and see if there's a place for us to meet up. A lot of times I'm zooming in and zooming out, and it's not always possible, but we can check the books and see. All right. Thanks for listening. Good luck in your comedy. Stay safe and stay in your pajamas for Punchlines and Pajamas. April 2nd. Peace out. Stay funny. for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.